here, there, and everywhere. SAFM 104.3 FM in Rustenburg. At SFM Radio and at Pimelo Mutile on Twitter. Thank you so much for staying with us. It's 1.30 and uh, we are going to be discussing COVID-19 and particularly this new variant that has, I think, um, you know, confused many of us as well. Just lay people, we're trying to get the hang of it. I think even the professionals are trying to get the hang of it. Professor Beatrim Fielding, he's always here with us to try and explain it in layman's terms. Director of Research Development at the University of the Western Cape and he's also a virologist who's joining us on the line. Prof, thank you so much for making the time again to talk to us. Good afternoon. So, Prof, you've been you've been writing a lot about this new variant lately, <laughs> um, and and I just wondered if if you're writing as much as you're writing, what what actually is going on in the professional world? What what are you guys not clear about? Pamela, you know there seems to be lots of confusion, especially amongst the the public. Yeah. So, so I've been trying to share as much information as possible. And the information I share is based on data that's available now, but also data uh, from the previous coronavirus outbreak from 2003 and 2012. Yes. You know, much of what we're seeing now um, can be explained from what we learned back then. So, so my aim is really just to make um, things as, as accessible and understandable to people as, as what I can. Are you saying that... What you can explain and the learnings that we have from back then are specifically um, for this new variant? No, for, for COVID in, in general. general. Okay. Yeah, so, so much of what we've seen for COVID is exactly what we've seen before. So if you take this variant, for instance, mm. if you look at the six other coronaviruses, all six of them had mutations. Mm-hmm. Some of them had mutations mm. in more or less the same regions. So we know that uh, due to the genetic makeup of these coronaviruses, they will mutate. It's always difficult when you see these mutations to, to, to really speculate accurately initially what the impact of those would be. Okay. And that's why we really need to look at the past so that we can inform the present, really. Can we keep up with this, the, the mutation? And, and the... <laughs> we will never be able to keep up with the mutations. Um, what we need to, to, to keep up with is how these mutations change how the virus behaves. Mm. So if you, look at, if you look at this current in our last interview, I mentioned that if you look at the genetic makeup of these viruses mm-hmm. uh, of COVID, it's about 50,000 uh, portions in that genetic uh, material. South African researchers were saying there's about 25 changes out of those 50,000. That's a lot. If you, so, it's a, so you see, it's a, it is, it's, a, it's a fairly small number, um, <laughs> 25 out of 50,000 only. So yeah, but is, Prof... So you, how do those change how the virus behaves? That, that's the important question. I, I was going to say, you also made the point that I suppose, yes, it's a few, 25 is a few, but, but here we are having this conversation about the variant. It must be significant how, how they've impacted on the virus behavior. So you know what is important about this 25? About yes. four or five of those changes mm-hmm. is found in the spike protein. And the spike protein is what the virus uses to get into the human cell. And there are regions in the spike protein that's very, very important for that movement into the human cell. Mm-hmm. 
And, and a few of those appear to be in those regions, and that's why researchers are speculating this virus probably is transmitting easier. This is the question. Yeah. How, how much do we know yet about that fact? So there, are, there is so much conflicting data. Some groups from certain parts of the world say it is, and others say it's not. I think we need to wait longer. Uh, simply saying that it's spreading easier because it's now the predominant strain doesn't always make sense. So in South Africa, for instance, the researchers are now saying, if you look at those infected, about 40% of people are now infected with this new strain. Does it mean it's spreading easier? Or does it simply mean that this is now the dominant virus and it's finding more people because of the larger groups of people getting together? That's the type of conversation that really needs to be had. Another important one is, does this mutations in the spike protein, does it make under 18s more susceptible uh, to infection? So will they become infected uh, easier and with higher viral loads? And that's the other very important question. So the big concern from me is that from my understanding, and please correct me if I'm wrong, my understanding is that the vaccine as we know it, and I know there are many vaccines, yeah. they had not tested on children um, below, I don't know, I think 16 and others 18. And that's, the, that's my biggest worry about the vaccine. So the safety data is not available for the one vaccine mm. uh, for kids under 16, the mm. other one for kids under 18. Mm. What is also worrying, there's no safety data for pregnant females yet mm. or for, for breastfeeding females. And if you look at the, the two mRNA vaccines, if you look at data from the CDC, they report all of this data on people that were tested, but only 10% of those people tested um, in phase three trials were non-white. So, so, so are we going to see different um, response to the vaccine? Will it be less effective? Will it be more effective? I'm a bit concerned about, the, about those variables. Um, re- regional geographical issues as well. Are you not concerned about that? Oh, definitely. Um, because genetic makeups, and that's why you need to test these these new type of vaccines and new drugs, etc., you need to test them as widely as possible in as many varying um, population groups, demographics as possible, an equal number of males and females. So we need all of the safety data to, to conclusively say that this is safe and this is how it will behave. This does not mean this is a bad idea to use this vaccine mm. necessarily. Mm. For me, the biggest concern is the minister speaks about 40 million doses of vaccine for South Africa. 40 million doses enough for 40 million people. Mm. If 40% of our population is under 18, that takes out a huge uh, portion but of that's, the that's just 54 it. million people already. That's just that for me is the biggest concern because we have yeah. a very young population here. Exactly. And then my, my, my worry is people is everybody's expecting this vaccine to be the silver bullet. Mm-hmm. If we cannot in, um, vaccinate uh, the kids and if kids are becoming easier um, yes. infected, uh, they can be a, a very big source because they've always been a big source. What yes. if they're a bigger source now? And that's why I've said the vaccine is not a silver bullet. Yeah. We're just slowing down the, the transmission and spread of this virus. Okay. Now, let me talk to you as a virologist in this country and a scientist, because I'm also wondering if we shouldn't be having another kind of a conversation um, about what does this mean? If, if we have all these questions that you've put up, 
What does this mean for scientists, young people who are interested in developing themselves vaccines? Because are we not likely to see that maybe it's best to start working on something ourselves? I know we were busy with trials uh, in partnership with the university in the UK, but if if efficacy is also extremely regional, is it not time for us to think about our own vaccine that we can concoct in our own labs and, and maybe less stress about trying to pay this big amount of money that we don't have? So you, if, you, if you look back at the, at the past year, that's what our ministers and our president has been saying. Um, what capacity do we have in South that's Africa to develop these vaccines? Yeah. But it, it's not all doom and gloom. Remember that all of these vaccines and the data that, that's being reported is global data. Yes. Just a bit concerned about the spread of that global data. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's my concern. But of course, if, if in South Africa, and I know we do have the, the capability. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so what can, don't we Can we, we have? learn something? What do the we next have? pandemic um, are you South African shows? shows? No, no, Prof, I'm not going to wait for another <laughs> pandemic. I'm not waiting another 50 years. I'm asking <laughs> you about right now. We are, we're busy looking at this mutation of a virus right now. We have it here. So what I'm asking is that we know that we have very clever people, people who are passionate about their work. What don't we have? The pre-existing technology, I, I believe. I if you look at the labs that have um, responded very fast, they've had this technology yeah. that they've been working on for other viruses in the past. Got you. And, and all the knowledge is here, and that's why we have many labs from South Africa working with those international partners. But that's really the problem. Okay, so basically because, you know, pre uh, knowledge that has been in your, um, it, which is your IP, for instance, makes it easier and maybe quicker for you to, yeah. to build on. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Felix, you're calling from Nelspray High. Hello, Felix. Yep. The more things you can get done. Felix, I'm so sorry we didn't hear that. Please repeat your question or your comment. Hello, can you hear me? Yes, yes. Hi. Okay, okay. Thank you so much. I I actually wanted to find out that we have talked about social distancing, hand hygiene, hand washing, masks, and even vaccine. But what we are deliberately refusing to talk about is the chemotherapeutic agents that have been seen all the world now that has been very, very useful in controlling the virus, in treating or managing the virus. Why is this deliberate silence? So, so no, just repeat your question so that we are all clear about what you're asking, Felix. What are we refusing to talk about? Uh, but in drugs like ivermectin that has been shown all over the world to be able to control the virus. Felix, at the point when you say what you want to say, you actually go completely faint. So please so repeat it again. Camilo, I, get, I get what Felix is saying. Okay. Felix, maybe listen on the radio. Your reception is quite bad. Go ahead, Prof. <laughs> So uh, Felix is speaking about ivermectin. Mm. It's a it's a parasitic a parasitic Sitem. drug that's been used for a very long time to treat parasite infections. Yes, both in people and in animals. Sure. So so I've seen some really compelling studies. There's about 17 peer-reviewed studies mm-hmm. showing that it it can be very effective. Mm-hmm. And if you pull all the data, you see about 87, 85 percent. Uh, protection from infection and lowering death rate. Mm-hmm. In South Africa, a, a, a couple of days ago, I was I was asked, "Does ivermectin work?" Because the uh, 
shops in South Africa selling out on ivermectin. Yes, it does work, but you need to speak to your primary yeah. healthcare provider about these things. Mm. People were taking ivermectin used in veterinary sciences and injecting themselves. That is a huge risk. Yeah. So we have some very good drugs. We keep on talking about the uh, blood thinners and the, anti- the anticoagulants and the anti-inflammatories. Those are recognized in, in Europe and they're recognized by the WHO. Are we using these consistently and when are we using them? Are we using them early enough? Um, are, are we starting to see uh, a problem with the self-medication, Prof? That was the problem with the hydroxychloroquine yeah. as well. People were self-medicating mm. and self-prescribing. Mm. And the biggest problem was, with that is the quality of the product that you're using mm-hmm. and what dose do you use. Mm-hmm. And, and, and there were a huge problem with people overdosing. And, and that was the problem. So with self-medication and self-prescription, that is the biggest risk. And I suppose how that medicine also reacts to something else you could be taking. Definitely. And that's why you need to speak to your primary health care provider. Jimmy, you calling? Is it Jimmy or is it? uh, Jimmy, thanks so much for calling. Hi. Hello, Jimmy. Hello, how are you? I'm well, thanks. Go ahead with your question, Jimmy. Good, good. Uh, I just had the prof say the recent vaccine that has been tested, it was only focusing on the nine whites. I hear him very well. He says a very small percentage of the people of the sample of the people who uh, were part of the the testing sample was not uh, was non-white. Was non-white. Mm. That's very scary. Okay, let me just raise a simple question. I want to check which institution is it uh, allowed to can set the international standards for for vaccine. I mean to to mm-hmm. pass it. Mm-hmm. to be used uh, to the entire population. I'm okay. asking this question on the statement that was said by the World Health Organization when Madagascar, they were in the process of manufacturing their own vaccine. And they said it doesn't meet the international standard. Mm-hmm. Now the question is, who set the international standard for the vaccine? Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Jimmy. That's going to come up a lot. Uh, Professor Fielding, please go ahead. And, and that's the problem. Jimmy is correct. Um, we have international standards. Mm. And the, the biggest problem, and, you know, the WHO, the FDA's international vaccine um, bodies, they really set the standards. And, and countries or, or companies that develop these vaccines really need to clearly show that they adhere to those standards of safety, for instance. Mm. We've had some horror stories um, in the past uh, 10, 20 years where vaccines were tested Mm. and those vaccines were contaminated Mm. with other viruses and people actually died Mm. in the in the phase two and phase one clinical trials. Mm. So these standards are really safety standards where you clearly need to show that you're adhering to good manufacturing practices. Mm. And that that's part of the problem, isn't it? All this um, skepticism comes from that. And all part of what you hear when you hear people talk about all kinds of conspiracy theories, it's because there were these kind of mistakes. That's exactly the problem. And then some of the of the conspiracy theories are just so far fetched. The 5G one is still coming up. <laughs> um, the implanting of microchips are still coming up. Um, so won't you won't you do me a favor? And I mean, I know you're probably tired of doing this. Won't you just address the five G one because it, it is still coming up? 
So I am not a 5G expert. <laughs> um, so I do not know what the effect of, of 5G radiation is on the body. But I can guarantee you as a coronavirus expert mm-hmm. that COVID is caused by a new coronavirus that we've seen for the first time in the human population last year. Okay. All right. Let's take some voice notes coming through, Prof. Hi, Pamelo. In order to achieve a herd immunity, they were looking at, uh, I think, 65 to 70%, if I'm correct, of uh, the targeted uh, population in South Africa. And uh, because uh, the... uh, Print media were speculating on 3% and the president uh, 10% of total population. Uh, I think we're in the dark uh, as the public. Uh, somebody should come out clear and uh, as one body instead of having these different uh, statements. Uh, on the cost, uh, I, I estimated it at 5.7 billion rand that it will cost to achieve a 65% uh, herd immunity uh, vaccine to the total population. Thanks, Frank Marzberg. Pamela, the other thing is that they were intending to get the vaccine that uh, required only a single dose. Uh, Now, uh, uh, if I heard uh, Professor Shabir Mahdi uh, about lunchtime uh, with Elvis, uh, and he was uh, talking about another vaccine now, so if somebody could uh, enlighten us on this, please, Frank Marzberg. All right. But Prof, would you be able to respond to those questions? Yes. The second one is, I think, is the easier one, the less controversial mm-hmm. one. Both of the mRNA vaccines that have been approved, uh, both of them require two shots of the vaccine, mm. one 21 days after the first shot, and the second one about a month after, so about 30 days. Yes. And, and that is really to almost boost the immune system so that it reacts even faster and even stronger to mm. the infection. Okay. The, the first one, herd immunity, very, very good point. Um, if we do not have safety data for those under 18, under 16, and for pregnant females, we really can't vaccinate them. So will we um, get herd immunity or achieve herd immunity by vaccination? Probably not. But remember that it's not only vaccination, it's also the natural infections. So taken together, we still need to aim for about 70%. My biggest concern still is for previous coronaviruses, it's been shown that immunity antibodies last for about one to three years before they disappear. Mm-hmm. Uh, the white blood cells that, in, that is involved Slightly longer, depending on the study that you're looking um, at. Mm-hmm. So how long will herd immunity last? Mm-hmm. How long will immunity last? Mm-hmm. We don't know. Sure. Because you and I also spoke about reinfection and, mm. and that um, the fact that we, we don't have so many answers around reinfection just as yet. So it speaks to that I- immunity, because if you've been infected, one would assume you would also be slightly immune. Yeah, you should be immune. Um, Even if you do become infected, the symptoms will be much, much, much milder. Um, However, if you recall from our previous conversation, only about four studies have been confirmed to be real reinfections. And both of those people um, were infected with a different strain almost. They went Mm. to a different part of the world and a different strain infected them. So they could become reinfected. The cases we saw in South Africa thus far, 
It's not confirmed reinfections. It appears as though it was still the same infection. Mm-hmm. It just almost flared up later on again. Okay. But we don't know. There is no conclusive answer to that yet. Yeah. <laughs> that, you see, because if it flares up, is that likely to happen even after the vaccine? But that's the thing, Pamela. We don't know whether the vaccine, remember, uh, the vaccine, if you look at the numbers, yes. they, they're speaking about 95% um, effectivity. Yeah. So there will still be a percentage of, will everybody be infected? Definitely not. It, it will protect you from developing symptoms, some of these vaccines. It might not stop you from being infected. It mm-hmm. might not stop you from spreading the virus. Mm. Because we have not, we've taken the, the eight to ten years of vaccine development and we've pushed it yeah. into eight, nine months. All of these answers will be only learned and answered when we immunize and vaccinate either the broader population. Mm. All right. Let's take a quick break. Professor Beatrum Fielding is a director of research development at the University of the Western Cape and also a virologist. I'm going to take your calls on 11 Life Happens with Pimelo Mutine on SAFM, leading the conversation. Hi, I just want uh, to find out from your guest, uh, why is it that uh, the homeless or Naupe addicts, it seems more like uh, they are not getting infected, they don't wash their hands. I know addicts that I've seen last year before the lockdown, uh, and then now, even now, they are actually much more productive and more active. Uh, and yet again, they don't wash their hands, they don't social distance. Uh, what's the story there? Maybe we should do some research there with the homeless and the nyopes. Anonymous. Hi, Pimelo. Can the professor address us on the safe and effectiveness of this vaccine? Okay, Prof Fielding, I, I'm glad I'm not answering the Nyope question. You go ahead. <laughs> Thank you, Pamela. So I'll take the safety one first. Yes. If you go to the American CDC site, they very clearly state what the safety for these vaccines are. They do say that people who've received this vaccine, some of them still ended up in hospital and some of them still died um, due to COVID. There were some wow. um, allergic reactions to the to the vaccine, um, but if you compare it to those who do not receive the vaccine, there is some form of protection. Wow. We only have clear. Remember, phase three trials is on a larger population compared to phase two, but it's not hundred thousand people that were tested. Mm. We only really know conclusively what the safety is. Once we have wide-scale um, vaccination, unfortunately, that's the answer. Mm-hmm. Very, very interesting question about the why the homeless appear and, and drug addicts appear to be more protected. Mm. We've seen the same in HIV-positive individuals. There are now some um, labs um, internationally that speculating in certain cases, and we're not yet sure why, the weakened immune system mm-hmm. does not protect you from becoming infected, but it protects you from developing severe COVID. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it appears it's those weakened immune systems where there is no underlying inflammation. Mm-hmm. So you don't have this hyperinflammation and blood clots um, developing. 
So, so there is some information that, that points to that. So it's a very good question. Okay. There is a question here on Twitter, and uh, this person is saying, okay, so to what extent do we know if the the trials that were conducted last year in this country have contributed to this new variant? That's the one question. And then the second part of the question is, could it have been deliberately planted? So I want to split the two because I think the other may be a bit of a conspiracy, but the other one may be quite a, an interesting question. So the two of them sound the same. The vaccine um, did not contribute to the variant. The viruses are clever between inverted commas, and they will always try to find ways to evade the host immune system, mm. so the person's immune system. So we don't know how this virus five, ten years from now will change mm. if we have if we have vaccination that's unfortunately the answer we need to keep in mind that at the beginning of this pandemic everybody blamed the lab in china mm. for planting this virus mm. the same question now these viruses are found naturally in animals they mutate and then they can jump or they can mix and then they can jump to humans and because the human immune system will always be out to destroy these viruses they will always mutate to evade the host immune system. Mm. And that's really it's a competition between the two. So this this virus and the variant, it's a natural process. I think I think the most important thing that you've said in that sentence there is that if we remember that this is not entirely a new virus, they they are in animal. So yes. uh, you know, this idea that this is manufactured in a lab, we have to remember that they they actually come from living organisms just in a different species. So, Pumela, if you go look at the equivalent uh, COVID virus, mm. SARS-2 virus in bats, mm-hmm. the genetic uh, um, similarity mm-hmm. is almost 98%. Wow. So it's 98% wow. similar. Wow. So they're not, they're not new. They're just No, definitely here. not. Yeah. Definitely not. We need to keep in mind that we have 47 coronaviruses that we know of thus far as of, of last year. Seven infect humans and the other 14 infect animals. Mm. What about all of those that we do not know? Mm-hmm. All right. Kimberly, uh, Queen is calling us from Kimberly. Hi. Hi, Pimelo and Professor Fielding. Good afternoon, Queen. Go ahead. Uh, compliments of the new season. Thank you and same to you. Okay. Pimelo, the last time before Christmas, you interviewed Professor Fielding. Mm. I heard him saying that uh, there are two uh, main causes of death in covered cases. Mm-hmm. One I happened to hear is blood clotting. Yeah. And unfortunately, I could not hear what the second cause is. Prof? Thank the you. Second, the second one, Queen, is inflammation. So it's hyperinflammation. So during any infection or injury, the body has inflammation. And inflammation is really to fight the disease. Mm-hmm. When the disease is gone, the inflammation should disappear from the body. In COVID, this inflammation never disappears, and the little small compounds in the blood that regulate, um, control the inflammation moves to other organs, and now you have excessive inflammation in those organs. So you really have organ damage due to blood clots and hyperinflammation, so excessive inflammation. Thank you, Queen. Thank you very much. Um, Prof, I saw a case of of someone who lost their limbs, all their limbs, because of sepsis as a result of COVID. Would you explain that? So once again, it is the inflammation that causes um, vascular damage. It could be the blood clots um, that prevent the blood from flowing where it should go. Mm -hmm. Sepsis could be 
in um, a secondary bacterial infection and then you have these toxic substances from the bacteria moving throughout causing sepsis and the, the limbs could die. Okay. There's much of this that we can explain from other viruses, mm. but there's much that we're also learning. Okay, so that obviously means we're going to talk to you again soon. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Pamela. Thank you, Professor Beatrim Fielding, Director of Research Development at the University of the Western Cape. And he is also a virologist at the moment, really our go-to for COVID-19 related questions. It's two o'clock. Let's go to the very latest in SABC News with Amanda Machaka.